Beijing is in the hot seat. Lawmakers are introducing a slew of bills targeting the Chinese Communist Party. From repaying trillions of dollars under the China-Lied People Died Act to holding Beijing accountable for the pandemic, what exactly is our stance towards China? Head of the House China Select Committee is questioning whether the U.S. sees China as the biggest threat to American soil. That's after President Biden lifted solar panel tariffs, citing climate as the biggest threat. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The cost of the COVID-19 pandemic is rising daily. But the more the world learns about its origins, the more evidence points to China. Should the Chinese Communist Party be held responsible for the damage? And if so, how much? U.S. lawmakers introduced two bills seeking a combined $20.6 trillion in compensation. Here's what that number looks like. Texas Representative Trey Nels introduced the China-Lied People Died Act on Thursday. It would demand the CCP repay the $4.6 trillion Washington spent on COVID-19 relief. What's more, it would block federal funds from being transferred to China until the communist regime reimburses the U.S. The hardline stance on the CCP led to another resolution earlier this month. That measure would direct the House to hold China responsible for paying the U.S. $16 trillion, the money to cover economic losses to Americans. Under both bills, China would have to pay the U.S. over $20 trillion in total. That's more than China's GDP in 2021, around $18 trillion. Nels told Fox News that the CCP single-handedly caused the deaths of a million Americans and the worst economic disaster in U.S. history. The bills come as U.S. lawmakers gear up to investigate the origins of COVID-19. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy recently announced the formation of the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. The special task force will probe the beginnings of the pandemic that rocked the globe. The head of the House's China Select Committee says the Biden administration is divided on one key question, which is the biggest national security threat to the U.S., climate or China? Speaking to Fox News, Chairman Mike Gallagher said he believes the chairman of the Joint Chiefs will say China is our biggest short-term, near-term, long-term threat. The director of the FBI plus the CIA and the National Intelligence Agency have warned that China poses the greatest threat to the U.S. But Gallagher also said he thinks there's tension within the administration. That's because some officials consider climate the biggest existential threat. He's referring to officials, including climate czar John Kerry. An administration official told Fox News that they are using climate as a way to compete with China. Along that line, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is pushing for a resolution. If passed, it would repeal a decision from President Biden about solar panel tariffs. Let's take a look. Last year, Biden decided to suspend tariffs on solar panel imports from four Southeast Asian nations for two years. The countries are Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia. Over 80% of U.S. solar panel imports come from these countries. U.S. solar installers applauded the decision. But domestic solar panel makers weren't happy. Here's why. For years, U.S. solar panel makers have been struggling to compete with China. The country has come to dominate the global solar panel market. And with state-backed subsidies, solar panels from China are sold at a price that American makers find difficult to compete with. 
In response, U.S. officials hit Chinese solar panels with import tariffs for the last decade. But U.S. solar panel producers suspect China has been evading tariffs through the four southeastern Asian countries. Last year, a U.S. solar panel company called Oxen took action. It asked the Commerce Department to investigate the issue. The investigation halted most solar panel imports at the time, which delayed installations across America. California Governor Gavin Newsom joined U.S. companies that install solar projects in protest. They argue the investigation could hold up efforts to transition to clean energy. And a trade group estimates the delay could cost the industry billions of dollars. President Biden then decided to pause tariffs on solar imports from Southeast Asia. Later, the Commerce Department found some Chinese solar panel makers dodged U.S. tariffs. That's by moving products through the Southeast Asian countries. Now, bipartisan lawmakers are demanding action. They argue the move is to boost domestic solar makers. The bill was introduced by three Democrats and three Republicans. China's access to semiconductors could soon take yet another hit. Japan and the Netherlands will soon join the U.S. in restricting exports of semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. That's according to a report by Bloomberg on Friday. On the same day, the Netherlands prime minister says it's not clear whether his government will disclose the result of talks with the U.S. over the issue. A Dutch delegation is in the U.S. on Friday for discussions. The prime minister said the talks are aimed at preventing the best technology be used in defense systems where you don't want it. But he also questioned how do you ensure at the same time that you don't damage supply lines. Bloomberg's report cited sources as saying the Netherlands will stop tech giant ASML from selling advanced chip-making machines to China. Dutch and U.S. officials could reach a deal by the end of the month. Dutch company ASML is a key producer for semiconductor manufacturing equipment. 15% of its sales went to China in 2021, worth more than $2 billion. Those sales could be affected if the Netherlands were to adopt the U.S. plan. The report also said Japan would put similar restrictions on Nikon, another major provider of chip-making machines. A government spokesperson said Japan would take appropriate steps based on regulatory moves made by the U.S. and other nations. Florida Senator Marco Rubio is taking aim at J.P. Morgan. In a letter to the bank CEO, Jamie Dimon, Rubio denounced a partnership between America's biggest bank and Chinese company ByteDance. The bank is developing payments technology for ByteDance, the same company that owns controversial social app TikTok. Rubio's top concern involves the security of private U.S. user data. He cited the bank's efforts to help ByteDance with, quote, real-time data exchange track and trace and its ability to see and monitor payments. Under Chinese law, Chinese companies must hand over data to Beijing if authorities request it. But it's not just J.P. Morgan. Congress members are urging sports network ESPN to end a partnership with TikTok as well. While new legislation could pull federal funding to Texas colleges that refuse to ban TikTok on campus, Rubio demanded the CEO answer questions about the ByteDance partnership by mid-February. What promises do Chinese students have to make if they're sent abroad on Beijing's money? And what does that mean for national security of America? Agreements discovered in Europe may shed some light. NTD's Juliet Song has the details. Alarm bells went off in universities in Sweden when they found out that Chinese students who came on Beijing-backed scholarships had to sign agreements with the state. 
In written contracts, these students must promise they won't engage in activities that harm the interests of the motherland, and that they'll follow the management of Chinese consulates. David Nord is the vice dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Lund University in Sweden. Several students at his university were found out to have signed these agreements. So had we known of these contracts beforehand, we would not ever have been able to admit these students. So we realized that there was a contract that we were not aware of. The agreements are between the sponsored students and the China Scholarship Council, or CSC. The agency is under China's Ministry of Education. It sends Chinese students to study on scholarships around the world, including the United States. The CSC works with many elite colleges in the U.S., like Harvard, MIT, and UCLA. About 370,000 Chinese students studied in the U.S. in 2020. And a study says one in every 14 Chinese students in America are sponsored by CSC. But the agency's scholarship comes with a catch. In some cases, it requires the student to swear loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. Here's an example. In one of the CSC's application guidelines, it said applicants must support the leadership of the Communist Party and the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. In another guideline, the CSC said the program would not send out those who have political problems. It also asks recipients to submit periodic research reports to Chinese consulates. It's unclear what the Chinese students are required to report. Tang Jingyuan is a China affairs analyst. He said these agreements may compel Chinese students to engage in intelligence activities or steal intellectual property. They're at risk of being forced to follow the Chinese Communist Party's orders, like participating in the regime's overseas influence operations, gathering intelligence, and stealing intellectual properties. These students might be forced to take on these political tasks. Tao noted, while many Chinese students studying abroad are just there on their own money, countries need to be extra cautious about students sponsored by Beijing. Once they sign the agreement, technically speaking, those students are no longer just average Chinese citizens. They're part of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it's important to differentiate between those that work for the regime and the Chinese people. U.S. officials have been raising concerns about Beijing exploiting students to steal intellectual property from the West. In 2020, Washington shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston. The decision was reportedly in part because diplomats there helped Chinese researchers steal sensitive technologies like artificial intelligence. Back to the agreements discovered by the Swedish universities, the contracts didn't explicitly ask the students to pledge allegiance to the regime. But Professor Nord pointed to vague language and phrases like not harming the interest of motherland, calling them concerning. So in Sweden, you could not have a contract where you will have to, to get a certain um, stipend in academia. Uh, you cannot say that you should not be critical to your homeland. That would violate our principle of, of uh, academic freedom and uh, freedom of speech. Nord said there's also another issue with the agreement. A student's guarantor, who is usually a close relative, has to sign the agreement as well. Under the contract, that person can't leave China for over three months as long as the student is studying abroad. And if the student violates the agreement and can't pay back the damages... And then they have to pay instead. And that uh, is 
a form of collective punishment in a way, uh, which is against the, the values of our university, and it's actually collective punishment. It, it's against international humanitarian law. Two universities in Sweden have stopped working with CSC. Still, Nord said universities are debating a coordinated approach. Juliet Stom, NTD News. China-Australia relations seemingly on the mend. Chinese leader Xi Jinping said the two are moving in the right direction on Thursday. Xi made the remark during a congratulatory message for Australia Day. Trade relations do appear to be warming between the major partners after some three years of tension. China placed unofficial bans on Australian products from coal to wine in 2020. The move was widely considered retaliation. That's after Australia called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 and put a 5G network ban on Chinese telecom giant Huawei. In January, China granted permission for certain companies to resume Australian coal imports. But the countries may not be completely finished trading blows with each other. With its borders now reopened, Beijing is relaunching group tour programs for Chinese citizens next month. Twenty countries are on the destination list, but Australia isn't one of them. Some experts are calling it payback for Australia imposing more COVID-19 testing requirements on visitors from China. At the same time, Australia is making a new weapons purchase, setting aside nearly $700 million to buy smart sea mines. The mines can reportedly be turned on or off to allow passage for friendly ships. The decision likely motivated by maritime uncertainty in the Indo-Pacific and rising Chinese aggression in the region. A deadly cold snap is gripping East Asia, and China is experiencing its most frigid temperatures in decades. Here's the latest on the winter weather. In China, state broadcaster CCTV showed footage of a frozen bicycle, while railway workers in the eastern Yantai city worked to clear heavy snow from the tracks. Temperatures in Mohei, China's northernmost city, dropped to a record minus 53 degrees Celsius, that's minus 63 degrees Fahrenheit, on Sunday. Heavy snow and strong winds have also hit southern regions of South Korea. In Japan, domestic airlines cancelled 450 flights, while 490 highway areas were blocked and 57 railway services suspended nationwide, the transport ministry said. The bitter weather is expected to continue through Thursday. Amid the winter cold, some areas in northern China have suspended gas supplies, shutting down gas-powered indoor heating. Experts partially blame high gas prices due to the Ukraine-Russian war. But there's more. China's COVID-19 restrictions over the past few years have slowed down the economy. Tax revenue has been reduced, and authorities have cut subsidies for energy companies. Coming up, as Washington gets more involved with the battlefield in Ukraine, a new report says the U.S. lacks weapons to fend off a threat in the Indo-Pacific, China. Is the U.S. losing its focus on rising geopolitical power plays? And how does the Ukraine war impact America's ability to fight a potential war with Beijing? We hear from Stephen Bryan from the Center for Security Policy. A lot of our equipment has been worn out by these wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq and places Syria and places like that over the years. And we haven't, we haven't up, updated our equipment as rapidly as we should. But still, it's better than anything the Chinese have, let me tell you that. 
And I feel very confident that we do very well against the Chinese Air Force. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A Wall Street Journal report says the U.S. isn't ready for a battle over Taiwan. It says Washington would run out of key long-range precision-guided munitions in less than one week if war broke out. Senior fellow Stephen Bryan from the Center for Security Policy speaks about the Ukraine war and how that could impact U.S. abilities in a potential fight with China. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, Tiffany. I want to begin with the talks of how the U.S. says it's going to send some M1 Abrams tanks over to Ukraine and that Europe supports this. So what do you make of this, and is it the U.S. getting more involved here? Well, I think the U.S. really wanted Europe to send Leopard tanks or Leopard tanks to Ukraine. But the Germans told them in no uncertain terms that if you're not sending tanks, we're not sending tanks. So it kind of called the, the card of the U.S. side. I don't think the U.S. planned to do this. Uh, it thought the Europeans should do it. it. It makes the U.S. a much stronger participant in the potential Ukrainian offensive, which they don't want to be participants in, at least openly. So it, it has changed the game somewhat. On the note of ending the war, how would we go about that? Pick up the phone and call Putin and say, we want to talk. I mean, the, the, that's the easy part. Uh, the hard part is figuring out what you want to talk about and on what basis to have a, a dialogue. Because, you know, frankly, this war is just grinding up the country, turning it into a disaster area, killing a lot of civilians, a lot of people who don't deserve to die, who are not combatants, destroying the infrastructure, destroying uh, uh, the economy. There's no economy left in, in Ukraine, frankly. Um, and, and basically, Ukraine is living off of U.S. aid. You know, we're paying the salaries of their military. Uh, we're feeding them. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, so I think that the, the Minsk II agreement as a framework, something the Russians have endorsed and supported, which is the good news, could be a basis. Now, the U.S. didn't was not a party to the Minsk agreements. It was the Europeans, particularly the Germans and the French, and, and the European community that, that supported that agreement. Um, and I, I think that, uh, uh, that the U.S. now has to get involved in negotiations. I want to now turn to a new report out from the Wall Street Journal that talks about how the U.S. weapons industry is unprepared for a China conflict. And it seems part of that is because of how much we've given to Ukraine. So what's your take on what's happening here? Are we maybe losing focus of another rising geopolitical power? Uh, I completely agree that that's true. Uh, the fact is, we've robbed all our stockpiles. Um, most recently from Korea, we took uh, 155 uh, uh, howitzer shells uh, out of the reserves in Korea and out of the reserves that the U.S. has in Israel uh, to, pour, to pour into Ukraine because the consumption of, uh, of ex we call expendables in the military, the consumption of expendables, that is shells and ammunition, is tremendous. These guys just fired off, you know, routinely in very large numbers. Uh, we can't support that. We don't have a, 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 an industrial base and a defense industrial base that's geared up uh, to surge and produce supplies. Doesn't exist. 
We haven't had one actually since World War II, uh, in in the true sense. Uh, and you're right. The, the situation in in East Asia, uh, in Taiwan, Japan, Korea, is very nervous, very dangerous. Uh, and the last thing we want is a conflict there. But the best way to stop a conflict is to have deterrence. And the best way to have deterrence is to have enough defensive capabilities so the other guy thinks twice about causing trouble. If Beijing were to go after Taiwan and the U.S. was somehow dragged in, how would that play out? I don't know. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, there have been simulations of various think tanks have uh, taken a pop at this. Some say we'll lose. Some say we, we maybe we can win, but it's very difficult. We'll have tremendous losses. One study from has said we'll lose five aircraft carriers, which is kind of interesting because we only have two in the region. Um, but in any case, I mean, that we're going to take a beating. Uh, I don't subscribe to any of that. But I don't think that a lot of it depends on, of course, what we do if there's if a conflict breaks out and how we decide to intervene if we intervene. And I think our the, the, the most impressive part that the U.S. has to offer to anyone, Japan and Taiwan, Korea, anywhere, is air power. This is where we shine. Uh, this is where we have superiority, I think, over China. Uh, so if we commit air power, uh, then we have a, a real good chance to, to stabilize any uh, unfolding situation in that region. If we don't commit air power, then it becomes very much more difficult. One of the problems we have is a lot of our equipment has been worn out by these wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq and places, Syria and places like that over the years. And we haven't, we haven't up, updated our equipment as rapidly as we should. But still, it's better than anything the Chinese have. Let me tell you that. And I feel very confident that we do very well against the Chinese Air Force. There's this new select committee on China. So what would you like to see in terms of U.S.-China relations going forward? I'd like to tell the Chinese, you know, you know, why don't you cut it out? What do you think you're going to get from this? You're going to get a war? Is that something that's good for China? It's not. Is it something that's good for the region? It's not. Is it something that's good for the global economy, which China lives off of? And Stephen, from a concerned citizen's point of view, if they're watching all of these different things unfold, what would you, what would your advice be to them? Let your let your elected officials know that you favor peace through strength, that you pay, favor a, a tough line with China, so that we don't get ourselves in trouble and get the world in trouble. And frankly, uh, I think they should be telling the, their members of Congress that we have done enough for Ukraine now. It's time for negotiations, but the U.S. has to take the leading role. There's no way out. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.